Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together and learn more about your word. And we ask, Lord, for the saints who are dispersed abroad that don't have fellowship, Lord, that they may find fellowship and that they may hear these words and learn more about you, that they would grow to know you more and be conformed to your image. And also, Lord, we ask for um, these words to penetrate to those who are lost and unregenerate, that you would regenerate them so they may believe the gospel and be converted. So, Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we gather together, and we thank you for those who have paid the penalties that we can actually gather together in freedom. And, Lord, we ask that you would also bless Bob's teaching this morning and all our worship and that everything we would do would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to be giving you an introduction into 1 Corinthians. And I've, you're going to have to let me know how you like my pictures that I've got. I got them off of the computer. And I don't know how they're going to turn out, but we'll see here. 1 Corinthians, by the way, I'm indebted to Bob for pointing me to this Gordon Fee and I've been reading his commentary on the introduction. It's been fabulous. I'm trying to still soak it all in, and it's just been really good. So I'm going to be sharing with you some background to what the issue was in Corinth at the time so that we can better understand why, in fact, Paul wrote what he wrote. As all of the epistles are, this is an occasional letter. An occasional letter means you and I have to understand why it is that Paul wrote what he wrote, What were the issues? Because if we don't know the issues, then we're going to more than likely misinterpret the letter. In fact, 1 Corinthians, Bob will attest to this fact that it's been abused by many, 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 many different theologians, pastors, and scholars over the years. And of course, we want to avoid that. So with that, let me just start off with a background to Corinth. Let me give you a brief history. I found this very interesting, actually. It was a Greek city originally, and Corinth flourished in 627 B.C., under a man named Periander. This Periander, he was actually known as the second tyrant. His father was the first tyrant. This guy was wicked. He was so wicked, in fact, that his son, he banished his son because he thought his son may take his kingdom away from him. And then the people, I forgot where he sent them, but wherever he sent his son, these people were so concerned that Periander was going to come and kill them that they killed his son. I mean, this guy killed his wife. In fact, you may think of him as a Greek version of Herod the Great. Okay, he was ruthless. So at any rate, though, Periander was a good builder, and he built something called the Diolicus. And I'm going to show you. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right because I didn't see it in the Greek. It's in the English transliteration here. But what it is is actually a boat ramp at Corinth. Corinth exists on a four-and-a-half-mile isthmus, which I hate saying in public because I always feel like I'm lisping. (laughs) just don't say it fast okay it's on a four and a half mile isthmus and it's actually a ramp where you can you could take your ship and you could get to the gulf of corinth or you could be in the gulf what's called the saronic gulf and i'll show you actually i've got some pictures of that well he built that and it was a big boon to corinth because it enabled the people to use that port city for you could get to Italy quick and you could get to Asia very quickly. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why the city boomed so much. But then it was actually destroyed by the Roman Lucius Mummius in 146 BC and it was completely obliterated. But then what we have is Corinth is refounded by Julius Caesar. Some of the dates you're going to see are I've seen 46 BC. And I've seen 44 B.C. Not that it matters, but I think the distinction is when was the, the actual rebuilding started and when was the ceremony, so to speak, uh, that it was actually completed. So that would be the difference in the dating. Julius Caesar, the reason why this is so important to Rome 
was because Corinth had natural defenses. And again, I'm going to show you this on my pictures. It had what's called the Acro-Corinth. And uh, Keith, you've actually been there, correct? Well, you can t- tell us about what it actually looks like. Um, it has a water supply, a natural water supply from springs. And again, the two harbors on the east and the west. So you could defend it. You could withstand a siege. And it was important for trade as well. It was populated by freedmen in the Roman Empire. Uh, what is a freedman? Well, a freedman was once a slave, obviously, and now they have been set free either because they met their economic requirements to be set free or those who owned them could no longer keep them for some reason. But these men were pioneers in some sense because they looked at Corinth as a way to finally add to their riches and become independently wealthy and kind of start afresh in their own lives. And so these freedmen uh, played a big role in establishing Corinth. The other reason why Corinth became so important was the the Isthmian Games. Again, I have trouble with Isthmus. The Isthmian Games were actually, some people enjoyed them more than the Olympic Games, and they happened every two years. In fact, these games are alluded to, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you can see Paul uh, borrowing the imagery from the games that all of those in Corinth would have been familiar with. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul writes, he says, do, not, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And, and so forth. And so he also talks about the Bema seat and the reward seat. These people were very familiar with the games. And so he plays on an imagery constantly. So you'll be seeing that through the Corinthian letter here. Let me show you this picture. Here's Corinth, and here's this isthmus that it's on, four and a half miles long. I believe it's about 50 miles from Athens to Corinth. And here's the Saronic Gulf. Here's the Gulf of Corinth. If you go this direction, you head towards Italy. If you head this direction, you're heading towards not only Israel, but also Asia. And so you can see why it would be such a beneficial spot. You have trade to both spots to both areas of the world. If you had, this is Achaia. Corinth is actually the capital under the Roman Empire of Achaia rather than Athens. And if you had this direction, you would hit the island of Crete if you kept going to the south. So we're, we're oriented to the north. We're on a 360 heading. But if we go 180 on the heading, off of here, we'd end up hitting Crete. And if you went this direction, you'd end up hitting Cyprus. So I'm just trying to orient you where we are, Okay. Does that make sense? And by the way, I hope this doesn't bore you. I like to know where things are. Otherwise, it just seems to, it seems so nebulous when I'm studying it. Let me give you some more pictures. Again, here is a close-up, and God bless those guys at NASA. They do a good job in the photos. Here's the Isthmus again, and here's the Saronic Gulf. Here's the Gulf of Corinth. And I'm going to show you even a better picture, though. What? Look at this one. Do you see here? Here's this canal. They actually built this in 1933. So what happened is... Let me explain. Here's actually the modern day of city of Corinth. Because in 1858, there actually the old city is off of the map a little bit. It was inland. But in 1858, it got destroyed by an earthquake. In 1922, it got destroyed by another earthquake. And finally, in 1933, they said, the heck with it. We're going to move it out onto the coast. And then at that time, they built this canal. And this canal is where that periander initially built that boat ramp because he didn't have enough money and men to build a canal. So just think they had to drag, they would have to drag a ship from one end to the other, but they built a ramp to do that. Well, now they've got a canal. So the canal connects the Gulf of Corinth 
in the Saronic Gulf. But again, this is the modern city of Corinth. The old city of Corinth that we're talking about is off the map to the south here, or to the, rather it'd be to the west. We're east-focused now. Uh, so anyway, now here, um, remember I talked about the Acro-Corinth? That formed a natural barrier of defense, and that is in the old city, uh, just to the south of the old city of Corinth. That's what we're looking at right here. And on top of that hill would have been the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love, and they had at one time over a 1,000 prostitutes in Corinth. And the idea was that the people had this idea if they would engage with these prostitutes, they would gain favor from the gods in fertility, in uh, luck, in fortune, and so forth. And then uh, Keith pointed out to me earlier, you know, it's interesting, the type of sins that the Corinthian Christians were engaged in was that they believed that they could somehow get into a mystical union in a way where they could reach the gods, so to speak, sexually. And so that is something that Paul is going to have to address because, remember, he has preached the gospel to them, and the only way to have access to God is not mystically, but positionally through faith in Christ. And so that's going to become a big issue. Right here, these are actually the pillars to the temple of Apollo. And again, why would you worship Apollo? Because you needed strength, you needed help in the time of war. So therefore, you would give sacrifices to him. So anyway, that's again, that's the Acro-Corinth, and that would be... Um, and actually, this is a picture from, I think, there. Now, well, what's interesting is I don't know what we're looking at here because there was also a Byzantine fort. So I don't know if this is the temple. It is right here? Okay, so the, Afro, the temple of Aphrodite, where is that in location to where? It's like kind of at the end there. It was a, it was a prominent temple. They didn't this have, way? It's, yeah, it's not standing. Oh, it's like not the, standing. Uh, not okay. One. All right. Well, anyway, you guys, we're looking to the north right here. We're looking towards the, um, that water up there is the um, Corinthian Gulf. Okay, so we're looking to the north off of that hill. So anyway, that would be where the old city, though, w- would have been laying, would have been just to the north of that hill. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. So now, back to the important stuff here. Corinth, during the time of Paul, Paul establishes the church in 49 to 51 A.D., and we can read about that in Acts 18. In fact, somebody had Acts 18, 1 through 4, and while we're getting to that, this would have happened on Paul's second uh, missionary journey, if you guys recall that. And that's what's being alluded to here in Acts 18, 1 through 4. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews, all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning with the, in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Yeah, so here he stays with Aquila and Priscilla. He establishes the church. And again, that would be around 49 and 51 A.D. at his second missionary journey. And then what happens is we know that Corinth had a mix of Roman and Greek pantheons. We were just talking about that. And also the mystery cults. In fact, it had 26 sacred places, some of them temples, some of them not. But again, the big thing that the people wanted in the, the area of Corinth is the pagan idea was to gain favor with the gods. So think of this. Remember our issue in the book of Colossians was that people needed favor from the angels to protect them from the stoichia. In some sense, these people are looking to the Roman gods for favor in their life as well. Okay, And oh, Keith has got something on that. 
in, in a certain way, Corinth was the New York or the, the cosmopolitan center of the whole world at that time yeah. because that peninsula, if you get even farther, by going across that isthmus, you took out days of sailing in very, very dangerous seas for the old boats that had the, the sails on them. Sure. So anybody that was traveling from Rome west or from west to Rome or east and from east to Rome would end up going through Corinth. So it was very, very cosmopolitan. And that wealth then, they had a culture of, of wealth where in some of the cities they tended to be very poor or just oh, yeah. eking out a living. In Corinth it was much more a wine woman and song because people were wealthy. The general population was much more wealthy. And the Christians, uh, there you had wealthy Christians as evidenced later on in the book. Yeah, and you know that represents one of the big issues with the cr- Christian uh, Corinthians is that it was very difficult to get Corinth out of them. They thought that they could hold on to their old practices. In fact, they're actually, you're going to see that they're arguing with Paul that they have the right to still see prostitutes to engage in the old practices. And we'll talk about the reason why that is. So one of the difficulties Paul is having with the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians is getting Corinth out of them. That's the big problem. So, yeah, the culture had a big influence on them. Here's evidence, um, even in the text that Gordon Fee points to, the fact that they had many gods. 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, Paul writes, he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, uh, yet for, it should be for us there is what but one God. This is in reference, actually, to the worshiping of the gods, or I should say to the sacrificing, or I should say eating meat to idols. And that's going to be a big issue from 1 Corinthians 8, 1, all the way to 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll talk about that here in a couple of slides. So here again is Corinth during the time of Paul. The, there was a Gentile focus to the book. Although there were Jews who lived there, you're going to see that the primary audience and the primary heretics that Paul is dealing with are, in fact, uh, Gentiles. And here's some reasons why. There were temple feasts. Of course, no self-respecting Jewish person would have been going to a temple feast, that would have been an abomination to them. And we'll be talking about these in a few moments. They had um, a bad attitude towards marriage. In fact, because they believed, remember the Hellenistic dualism, what that teaches is that the body doesn't matter. Okay, all that matters is the spirit. Well, because the body doesn't matter, they in some sense even think it's wicked to have progeny. If you have kids, you're just propagating the human race and physical things are evil and so they actually look down towards marriage to some degree well what's ironic is let me just go one ahead here look at number four number four they're actually arguing for the right to go to prostitutes okay it's interesting the more pagan a culture becomes notice they want to argue that it's okay to go to prostitutes why because you can't sin anyway anything done in the physical body doesn't matter all right but yet they shun what God has actually ordained, namely marriage. Why? Well, because you don't want to have offspring because physical things are evil. So isn't it ironic, the more pagan you become, the more desire you have to get away from uh, the union between one man and one woman, and you want to actually have uh, many different partners, yeah. Well, that sort of shows you how pagan the Roman Catholic Church is. Okay, because... Let's say you've got a priest who goes to a prostitute or does some immorality. Yeah. Then he just has to go through a little discipline or what have you, and he's fine. He can still be a priest. Yeah. But if he gets married, he's defrocked. 
<laughs> so it's, in, in Roman Catholicism, it's more wicked to get married wow. than to go to a prostitute. Now, is that, how perverted can a religion get? Boy, that is an excellent point. That, it's exactly the problem at Corinth. Yeah, that is, that is distorted, is it not? Yeah, and then look at number three with me here, too. Uh, the seeking adjudication from city magistrates. Remember, the Jewish people, they would have settled their disputes from the Sanhedrin. The last thing that they would want to do is to go to a Gentile judge and have their differences solved. So these are big, four big ones. Now, so I think I had a passage here. I wanted to read. I don't know if I want to read it now, though. Somebody have 1 Corinthians six twelve through 20. I think I'll just read that now. Oh, yeah, Jim. I just want you to see, everybody to see how wicked and what Paul was fighting with here regarding these prostitutes. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be controlled by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now God indeed raised the Lord, and he will raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that anyone who is united with a prostitute is one body with her? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But the one united with the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. But the immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Oh, there you go. So here Paul is having to explain to these Corinthians that, yes, your body does matter. The Hellenistic idea is anything physical doesn't matter. The Christian, the Judeo-Christian understanding is, no, the physical body does matter. It's going to perish but it will one day be resurrected. Everything spiritual now will one day be physically restored. And Paul is claiming to the Corinthian Christians that no, in fact, it is sin to be engaged in these acts. So that's a big issue. And then number five, the denial of the resurrection. Again, if you believed that physical, the physical stature, physical nature was evil, well, then, of course, you would want to deny a bodily resurrection. And this played into their idea of Sophia and wisdom. These people at Corinth... They believed they had all the benefits they ever wanted because they weren't looking for the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, and so forth. They weren't looking for a resurrected body. What these people were is they were excited about having favor here and now, and also they were excited about having Sophian wisdom and being able to hold their wisdom and knowledge over against those who they thought less of who didn't have the same type of spiritual knowledge. And so they were very arrogant. So let's continue on. The old understanding of the occasion of 1 Corinthians is this. Paul's primary response, most people believed, is the division of the parties in Corinth, that the fact that he arbitrates their differences. Now, realize there are, in fact, real divisions that are going on at Corinth. In fact, Bob addressed some of these last week, talking about the Lord's Supper. There were real differences um, in socioeconomic status where the rich Christians often took advantage of the poor ones. And, of course, the uh, rich Christians are rebuked in the discussion about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. 
but it's interesting, this old understanding that Gordon Fee refutes, um, he, he refutes it because what his take is, is this. He thinks that Paul actually addressed the church as a whole because the issue was that the church was taking Paul on in trying to say that Paul was not, in fact, an apostle, that Paul was not, in fact, spiritual. So Paul has to take them on, as Fee says, at every turn. So here's the issue. It's not that the Corinthians were just dividing among themselves. That was an issue. But the big issue was that they were neglecting or rejecting, I should say, the apostolic authority of Paul. If you reject the apostolic authority of Paul, you leave and lose his gospel. And if you lose his gospel, then you're not saved. That was the real issue. And so Paul is fighting and giving a defense as to why he is, in fact, their apostle. The problem was not so much between the different factions, again, in the church, but between the Corinthians and Paul's gospel. Uh, let me move on here. First Corinthians is the third letter in the exchange with the Corinthian congregation. So we see that initially Paul had written them a letter trying to straighten them out. And I think that that's referenced in First Corinthians 5, 9. Who had that? Was that Mary Alice? Did you have that passage? So, okay, let me, before you read that, Paul establishes the church between 49 and 51 A.D., well, then they're having issues almost immediately, so he writes them a letter. That's what Mary Alice is going to be referring to, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Well, then they write back a response. In that response, what the Corinthians are doing is they're rejecting Paul, and they're taking issue with all the things that he has basically called upon them to do in order to flee from their former pagan idolatry. And so what we're looking at then in 1 Corinthians is the third letter. So here's the evidence of the first letter. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Is that it? <laughs> okay. I, there should have been more there. But, yeah, but you can see that he had, prior, uh, he had written prior. I read that passage, but I thought there was more to it. Yeah, he it just points out, though, that he had written prior to them regarding that issue. The other thing that I have up on the screen, notice I have 1 Corinthians 16, 15 through 17. That just refers to uh, Stephanus. Um, who else is it? Let me just, uh, Fortunatus and Caicus, I think, is the, are the names. These are the men. Let me just make sure I'm not giving you the wrong names. These are the guys who actually brought the letter to Paul. Yeah, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 15, it would have been Stephanus, Achaia, and then Fortunatus. I think that's how you would pronounce it. And, oh, I'm sorry, Achaicus. That's how it is. And it's in verse 17. So those are the men who actually brought the, the letter of the Corinthians to Paul, and that's what Paul is responding then in 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians, again, are rejecting Pauline authority and doctrine, and there's three big things that they're doing. Number one, some rejected the simplicity of Paul's gospel. And the reason why, another reason why is they favored the rhetoric and headier stuff of Apollos. And that's why Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians 3, 4, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? And what does he mean by when he's saying that, you, are you not mere men? Remember, the Corinthians are boasting that they're spiritual and Paul is not. Apollos has this superior rhetoric, and he's more like us, the Corinthians reasoned. He's high in intellect, and he's spiritual. He has Sophia, and he has wisdom. But this Paul, his gospel, oh, 
It's antiquated about blood atonement and uh, what's that all about? That's the reasoning in their mind. And so what Paul is doing is saying, no, you're the ones who are acting like mere men. If anybody's spiritual here, it's me, your apostle. That's what he's saying. Let me actually back up one verse, though, 1 Corinthians 3, 3. I just want to show a translation issue. It's not a big issue. It's just I think we should word it differently. 1 Corinthians 3, 3. Let me just back up to verse 1, actually. Paul says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. So again, Apollos... Now remember, there's no division between Apollos and Paul. Paul's issue isn't with Apollos. He thinks he's, his teaching's great. He's a blessed brother. That's the impression. He never takes Apollos to task. The issue is that the Corinthians are dividing between Apollos and Paul because Apollos is teaching um, heavier, weightier things that have to do with your walk in the Lord later on. Paul is sticking to the stringent requirements of the gospel because these people are straying from it. And so what he has to do is he has to set the record straight. These men aren't spiritual at all. In fact, they're acting like mere mortals. And so that's what his point is. He says, verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now... You are not yet able. Then verse 3, For you are still fleshly, for sin, and that could be carnal. Uh, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Do you see where it says like mere men? A better rendering of that would probably be according to mere men. Now, why is according to mere men better? Because remember that preposition kata, according to, it often has to, be a, has to do with being a preposition of standard. In other words, what standard were they living to? Was it God's standard? No, it was the standard of mere men, showing that they were completely lost as far as their understanding was concerned of the gospel. Their gospel was not to the standard of Paul's. They were inferior. And so Paul is having to do a reversal. They're saying he's inferior in understanding he has to prove that they're the ones who are inferior in their understanding. So that's what the big issue is. That's what the battle is all about. Number two, the Corinthians sat in judgment of Paul. And, and again, that's why Paul has to put them in their place. First Corinthians 9, 1 through 9. Did I give that passage out? I don't think I did. Let me, let me read that to you because you're going to see how Paul has to give a defense for himself. And this happens, by the way, in the middle of a section, in fact, let me read the rest of my slide. Corinthians sat in judgment of Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 9, because of the perceived vacillation with regards to food offered to idols. You see, Paul, in his first letter, he takes the Corinthians to task because they say it's okay to eat in the temples of the pagan deities. And Paul is to refute them and say, no, it's not. Well, what they see in Paul is a perceived vacillation because sometimes Paul says it's okay to eat, the meat offered to idols, and sometimes he says it's not okay. And they're not able to differentiate when it's okay and when it's not. And so that's what he's taking. So the point is, from 1 Corinthians 8 all the way to 1 Corinthians 11, he's dealing with the issue of meat offered to idols. But in verses, um, 1 Corinthians 9, like starting in verse 19, all the way down to 23, Paul has to address the reason why he does what he does. Why is he a chameleon and he acts like those who are under the law sometimes and like those who are not under the law? Why? Well, as you're going to see in these nine verses that I read, because they're taking him to task saying, hey, you don't act like an apostle. You're acting like a chameleon who vacillates on his own commands. First Corinthians 9, 
verse 1, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, right there, remember our four criteria to be an apostle? You had to be with Christ from the beginning, right? In his ministry, you had to see the resurrected Christ, you had to do the miraculous, and you had to be called. Paul fulfills all four of those criteria as one who was untimely born, if you remember, because he saw Christ late, but he still saw the resurrected Christ, and he was personally instructed by Jesus in Galatians chapter 1. And how long was he instructed for? It was for three years. How long were the disciples with Christ? For three years. So that's why Paul calls himself one untimely born. But nonetheless, he's laying out one of the apostolic credentials right there. And he goes on, he says, Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And I'll just go to verse 3. He says, My defense to those who examine me is this. I'll go on, I guess, to verse 5. He says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Of course, talking about Peter. So here you can see that Paul has to make a defense because they're taking him to task. They're saying he's not spiritual and he's vacillating on his positions. With that, let me show you another issue or the issue of food. Because remember in Acts 15, we had the Jerusalem Council. This would have occurred actually prior to the founding of the church at Corinth. And it says, for instance, I just took one brief snippet, Acts 15.20, where the apostles declared that, but... They said, but that we write to them that they may abstain from things contaminated by idols. Now, Paul ends up teaching them that sometimes you can eat of meat that was offered to idols, and other times you can't. And that creates confusion, and again, they think he's vacillating. But let me show you the distinctions that Paul makes. Uh, Food sold in the marketplace is okay to eat as long as no one's conscience is affected, 1 Corinthians 23-29. But eating in an idol's temple is purely forbidden, 1 Corinthians 8.10 and then 10.14 through 22. And so the real issue at Corinth isn't whether you eat the meat of the idol, so to speak. The real issue is going to the temple. That's the real issue because when you engage in temple activities, what you're demonstrating is that you're demonstrating that you're just nothing more than a pagan. You're engaged in the pagan practices that you were supposedly saved from And then the final nuance is that Paul explains his being all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. So 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, that's where Paul says, To those who are under the law, I became like one under the law, although I myself am not under the law. And then remember to those who weren't under the law, he says, To those who are not under the law, I became like one who was under the law, although I myself am not under the law, but I am under the law of Christ. And we're going to be talking a lot about what does it mean to be under the law of Christ? In what sense was the Old Testament law done away with? And what does it mean to be under the law of Christ? We're going to be talking about that. But realize what Paul is having to do is he's having to explain why he becomes like so many different groups. And the reason why is because Paul, he does not want him his own actions to be the offense to the gospel. Because why? Because the gospel itself is the offense. Uh, The only offense that he wants there to be is the offense of the gospel. And that's why he becomes all things to all people. Um, Again, the occasion will continue on here. Number three, Paul fights for his apostolic authority. 1 Corinthians 14.37, he writes, If anyone thinks he has a prophet or spiritual, 
Let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. To lose authority for Paul is, in fact, to lose the gospel itself. So here are the problems. I'm going to give you, I think I have four of them here. The problems addressed, and the big issue, again, is that the Corinthians are moving towards Hellenism. So these are the problems, friends, that Paul must address. Otherwise, the Corinthians are going to be off. Okay? They're going to be out, and they're going to be missing the essence of the gospel. Number one, the Corinthians thought they were spiritual, not Paul. If you lose your apostle, you lose his gospel. If you lose his gospel, you're done. Number two, it was an overemphasis on gift, the gift of tongues. To them, that is the Corinthians, they thought that that was the supreme evidence that they were of an angel-like status. And in fact, Gordon Fee calls it, they had an over-realized eschatology. They thought they had arrived. They had superior wisdom, superior knowledge, and in fact, they were even speaking in tongues, and that made them even all the more arrogant. Okay, So Paul has to explain to them how these tongues are to be used. So number three, the big issue, and if you're going to write anything down, if you're going to remember anything, I know I've thrown a lot at you, this is the big issue. The big issue is that the Sophia Gnosis led to arrogance. The Corinthians were convinced that they had the wisdom and knowledge that enabled them to thrive in this world, to have favor in this world, and that they were far superior to just nominal Christians and therefore other, others as well. And when in fact what they should have been boasting in all along was not themselves but the cross of Christ. They took faith and in a sense they were not boasting in the object of faith, that is Christ, but what they were doing is they were boasting in who they were and what they had done. So this led to arrogance. In fact, I gave, did I give 1 Corinthians 3.18 to anybody? I, oh, Norma, that's right. So here, um, before you read, what, what Paul is going to address here is, remember, the Corinthians have this perceived understanding that they have knowledge and wisdom, and what Paul is going to have to do is knock them down and say, no, you don't know anything at all, because, in fact, you have fallen uh, from the notion that we boast in Christ and him alone. 1 Corinthians 3.18 Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Yeah. And then who had the 1 Corinthians uh, 1.22-23? The same issue is raised here. There we are. 1 Corinthians 1.22 and 23. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. Yeah, and the same thing is in 1 Corinthians one eighteen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, to these Corinthians who boast in Sophia and wisdom, the cross is really an afterthought. It's a, something that they don't really want to dwell on. Why? Well, because it's foolishness. What they want to boast in is themselves and their own capabilities. And so Paul has to take them on at that account. If they lose the cross, they have no salvation. Their dualism led to a low regard of the body. Again, we read 1 Corinthians 6. Think about this, 1 Corinthians 5.12. I think that's where Paul says, how is it that some of you are saying that there is no resurrection? For if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. Again, why were the Corinthians saying there was no resurrection? Because... In their Hellenistic mindset, the body was wicked. Everything material 
was substandard. Why would you want that to linger? Why would you want that to continue? So that's when you read in 1 Corinthians 15, he's having them switch from a category where in their worldview there can be no resurrection. Okay, And he has to say, well, if there's no resurrection, well, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. Okay, But then in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, becomes, comes the good news where he has another divine but, but ah, Christ has been raised from the dead. So he, in fact, sets them straight. Yeah, Keith. And it's still very, very consistent with what we know about a discernment from 1 John 4, that he's talking about the one who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's from God, and that's the Spirit of God. And the whole concept of dualism is anti-Jesus yeah. come in the flesh. And the res- lack of the resurrected body would be anti-Jesus come in the flesh, would be forcibly a heresy. Exactly. And all we're seeing in First John that's more developed is the idea of Gnosticism becomes more developed. It becomes more militant. But you're right, the beginnings of the, the ideas in Hellenism are, are present here. And so in that 30 to 40 year period, it just gets worse. That's all. And that's what exactly what John is dealing with. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think. In, yeah, in First John, the idea is docetism. So there they, they're so, the people that John is dealing with is they're thinking that it would be wicked if Christ, God himself, would actually become man, that he would take on this flesh because anything fleshly, anything physical would be evil. So they, it can't even enter their mind that God would somehow do that. And in here, they're saying, well, no, why would we want a resurrected body? We want to escape the, the evilness of the body. Yeah. And the same thing that we're seeing now with mysticism in a mystical Jesus yeah. follows that same concept where I'm going to be close to the spiritual Jesus that I'm, I'm coming to mystically follows right in with what the Corinthians are talking about, and that's what we're fighting when we talk about uh, coming, the coming of Jesus mystically or the coming of Jesus spiritually, so I'm looking forward to a spiritual second coming is a wicked idea. That, that, that's right. And ironically, just thinking about, I'm just thinking about, as you're saying this, the, the emerging church, talking about mystical union with Christ and a mystical understanding of Christ. It's interesting when we go down that road, this Christ becomes so subjective that he ends up looking like someone in our own image. And in fact, I think that's, um, Larry, you've got something. In fact, that's what the emerging church has done is because you, they have a mystical Christ, they have been able to take that Christ and make them in their own image. Yeah. When even an eschatology that has a, a second coming of a spiritual Christ yeah. is not Jesus Christ come in the flesh. An eschatology that says we're looking forward to a parousia of a spiritual Christ is very much along these same, the same lines in a heresy. I agree. It has, yeah, that's right. It's, it's a physical coming. It's, it's, not a, it's not a spiritual one by any means. Yeah, and, yeah. Since you brought it up, when is there ever or is there ever an applicable use for the word mystical? Bob, you got something on that? I, I, uh, I, was, just, yeah. I was just studying this. <laughs> Were you? Okay. Yeah, this week. Yeah. Okay, because I'm preparing to write an article about uh, Oswald Chambers, who I believe is a false teacher and his devotional book is Deceived Christians for the Last Hundred Years. And he has a mystical Jesus that you get intimate with. Hmm. And so I was reading his stuff, and so I went to look, and he was always talking about total abandonment, total union, some sort of a higher order spirituality like the Corinthians thought they had, where you're perfected now. And so I was looking up what in the history of theology union with Christ has been known to mean. Yeah. 
And I, I found out that a hundred years ago, if you, you could find in an orthodox systematic theology people talking about a mystical union with Christ. Right. But what they meant by that was simply you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ. Yeah. And it wasn't some sort of higher order experience. And okay. so, but now in the 20th century, because mysticism has become such a heresy, I don't think it would be appropriate to use that term anymore. That's right. It was equivocation. They engaged in equivocation. That is, the people who talk about mysticism now, it used to be, like you're saying, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because the theologians back then knew better. They knew it wasn't somehow some ecstatic experience. And so if you look at Romans 8, for example, to have the Spirit of Christ is synonymous with being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But we need to be absolutely clear that Jesus Christ bodily was raised from the dead and he bodily ascended to heaven and he bodily sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. That's right. And when he comes back, he comes back bodily. Yeah. Okay? Mm -hmm. If you have some mystical Jesus that you can somehow get intimate with, then you're delving into like this Mike Bickle in Kansas City, the romantic Jesus, the... Look up the word intimacy, and you won't find it anywhere in the Bible. Oh, that's interesting. Oh. Okay. And so I'm reading Oswald Chambers. He's talking about intimacy with Jesus. He's just talking about some sort of a uh, metaphysical experience with the spirit Jesus. Yeah. And he's not talking about the bodily raised Jesus who sits at the right hand of God. Amen. That's right. Yeah, you know, Hodge, I don't know if you have his systematic theology, but there was a theologian who, he was from Princeton, wasn't he, Bob? That's where he taught. Well, Hodge has a systematic theology where he actually does a really good job at defining mysticism, and he explains the clear delineation between what they infer by a mystical union with Christ. Bob said it's where the Holy Spirit resides within us, but what they were, what, what he's showing is the difference between, yes, when we have mystical union with Christ, it's not that we have an ecstatic, subjective experience, but rather we know Christ objectively through the Word of God, and it is the Holy Spirit now who we are in right relationship with so that He considers us no longer aliens or enemies, but rather friends. Okay, So therefore, in that sense, God abides and dwells with us so that on the last day He will not lash out against us. And in, in, So in that sense... This, see, the idea is that God right now dwells within us, or, or dwells with us, okay? And why does he dwell with us? Well, because we're no longer enemies, okay? The enemies of God will not dwell in his camp. And so he's dwelling with us. Now, remember, the idea is, is that it's not that there's a metaphysical chip of God within us that there wasn't before. Because remember, God is everywhere. David says, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I go down and make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God is everywhere, okay? Metaphysically, God is omnipresent. But in the unique sense to those who are Christians, the Holy Spirit resides within us because you and I are no longer enemies. And because you and I are no longer enemies, God has, in a sense, premature table fellowship with us. He resides with us. But that which is in some sense mystical, it's not ecstatic, but the point is it's positional, will one day be fully realized physically. Does that make sense? So again, mystically, I don't even want to use that term, but I was using mystically in the sense that the theologians in the 1900s were using it. They didn't mean an ecstatic, subjective experience. So, yeah. 
Yeah, well, that was a great question. Yeah, and yeah, thanks, Bob. Yeah, mysticism is just such a big issue, and and and, it, and we see it all the way through the Gospels that they've been in, in the different epistles they've been dealing with this issue. Now, here's a theological contribution of First Corinthians. The first one is eschatology. We're going to talk about the parousy of the Lord. We're going to see it with regards. Remember, any time we take partake of the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until when? Until He comes. Okay. And so, again, we're not only proclaiming what the Lord has done, but we're proclaiming the fact that he is, in fact, coming bodily for us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.23, Paul is going to be talking about the very same thing in regards to the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and us is a big focus. It's actually physical. Therefore, the body does matter. And therefore, the Corinthians cannot argue that the body doesn't matter, and therefore they can do whatever they want in it. The present age is passing away to Paul. There's two ages. There's the age that we live in now, and then there's the messianic age. The messianic age will dawn when Christ physically comes, and that will usher in, of course, this idea of the the messianic kingdom. And we know from other places like the book of Revelation chapter 20 that it's, in fact, a thousand years, and then the eternal state. So it's all combined in the age that's coming rather than this present age. Christian obedience, keeping the commandments of God, we see that in 1 Corinthians 7:19 but remember we're going to make a big or have a big discussion about when Paul says he is not under the law but he is under the law of Christ we're going to be talking about that what is it in the old covenant that passed away and what is still with us but we're going to be talking about keeping the commandments of God remember our salvation is never I should let me just say it very carefully our salvation is not initiated and our salvation is not effected In other words, we don't effect our salvation, we don't cause it by obedience to the law. However, those who trust in Jesus Christ, who fully obeyed the law and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, will have a desire and will be given the ability by the Holy Spirit to therefore start being obedient through the process of sanctification to the law of Christ. Okay, so that's the idea. So no one can claim that they're saved if, in fact, they sin and sin and sin. And the analogy I like is think about a Christian is someone who, in their walk with the Lord, falls in a mud puddle and they can't stand it. They get up, they they dry themselves off, and they get out of it, and they keep walking towards the Lord. A person who's not saved, they fall in the mud puddle, they pitch a tent, they roll in it, they gurgle, they roll around, they love it. Okay, that's the difference, and that's what Paul has uh, convinced them of. Christian obedience, we, again, we are subject to the law of Christ. That's what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 9.21. Sin is not to be tolerated in the kingdom of God. I know Larry likes this. We're in the no-sin zone because it makes you think of uh, <laughs> your buddy uh, on Fox there. And then um, ecclesiology, of course, being the church. The church is God's temple to Paul in, Cor- in Corinth. And, in fact, the church is the body of Christ. And uh, that's where, of course, Paul is going to have to refute those who, at the Lord's Supper, are showing favoritism with rich brothers and sisters because they're not recognizing the body, not, not the physical body of the Lord or some transubstantiation doctrine, but the fact that their brothers and sisters, whoever they are, wherever they come from, whatever socioeconomic status they have, because they've been purchased by the blood of Christ, they're part of the body. And so Paul's going to have to refute that. Here's the outline, and this is a a broad overview 
and we're going to get into to more specific details as we go. I like outlines, but here we have the introduction. We have the response to the reports. And remember, that would be the reports from the letter that the Corinthians send. Um, A here, I have the church is divided against Paul. Remember, that's the big issue. It's not divisions within the church themselves, although that certainly is an issue. But the big problem is the church is against Paul. And if they're against Paul, they're against the apostleship of Paul. If they're against that, they're against Christ. Immorality and litigation, uh, chapter 5 through 620. We have the response to the Corinthian letters, the major theme from chapter 7 all the way to 1612. And that breaks out this way. Marriage and related matters we see in chapter 7. In chapter 8 through 11.1 is the food sacrifice to idols. And that is, again, in that section we're going to see Paul have to explain what's allowable. In other words, you can eat meat if it's sacrificed to an idol and it comes from the marketplace as long as a weaker brother and sister is not offended or for conscience sake somebody else may be weakened by it. Okay, But then Paul says anything that if you will not engage in immoral acts or uh, partaking of the feasts inside the temples themselves. And also within that section, Paul is to give it a defense why he is a chameleon. So that's all found in that section. Then women and men in the worship. We have the abuse of the Lord's Supper. That's what uh, Bob was talking about last week. That'll be in uh, 11, 17 through 22. The spiritual gifts. This is going to be a really raucous time, I would expect here, because there's a lot of, a lot of controversy on this section. <laughs> In fact, that's why Bob says, why don't you do that book and see what happens? <laughs> see, Bob already knows how this all plays out. See, And then uh, the resurrection of believers, and then finally about the collection and the conclusion. And so that is the major outline. So now what I hope by this outline is you have the handout or you can get it online and maybe just keep it folded in your in your Bibles or whatever, and then you can just kind of... It helps, I think, to keep the flow. What is Paul arguing? What's the major issues? It'll help us interpret the book as we go. So I know I threw a lot at you, but remember the big theme. If the Corinthians reject Paul, they reject him as an apostle. If they reject him as, a, reject him as apostle, they reject Christ because he is the one who commissioned him. And, of course, they lose the gospel. That is the big issue. And with that, I'm sorry I, I went kind of long, but um, you're free to go or talk or ask questions. Yeah, free to move around the cabin. That's right. The seatbelt sign is off. <laughs> well, enjoy fellowship with one another.